हेलो एवरीवन माय नेम इज विकास अग्रवाल एंड आई एम द फाउंडर ऑफ एआईएफ एंड पीएमएस एक्सपर्ट इंडिया एआईएफ इज नथिंग बट अल्टरनेट इन्वेस्टमेंट फंड्स एंड पीएमएस इज योर पोर्टफोलियो मैनेजमेंट सर्विसेज सो वी आर वन ऑफ द लार्जेस्ट प्लेटफार्म फॉर अल्टरनेट फॉर इन्वेस्टिंग इन अल्टरनेट इन्वेस्टमेंट्स एंड पोर्टफोलियो मैनेजमेंट सर्विसेज सो व्हाट वी डू इज यू नो एट एआईएफ एंड पीएमएस एक्सपर्ट इंडिया आर एंडेवर इज टू एजुकेट एंड एंपावर द इन्वेस्टर कम्युनिटी एंड देयरफॉर वी कीप ऑर्गेनाइजिंग दिस नॉलेज बेस्ड सेशंस and we we call it ask the expert show so we invite experts from different industry and we try and read their mind and understand what's happening in and around the economy and we try and learn from their wisdom which they have developed over a period of time so it's a very special day because with me i have mr arun chulani uh, he's the co-founder at first water capital fund uh, so firstly arun uh, uh, you know i take this opportunity to welcome you on this show called ask the expert No, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here, and uh, thank you for being so gracious to uh, to host me. Right, thank you. So, what I'm gonna do is uh, the format of the show is very simple. I'm gonna introduce uh, Arun, uh, uh, you know, for the benefit of our audience who are watching this show for the first time, and then we'll uh, try and read his mind. I have a few a set of questions that I'm interested and keen uh, to know more from uh, from Arun. So you know Arun is a seasoned investment professional with over two decades of experience. Uh, previously, he headed the principal investment team for Icarus in Petroleum Industry, a fund that focuses on energy value chain with over 400 USD, um, 400 million USD uh, asset under management. Arun has overseen investment opportunities in the manufacturing, shipping, and chemical sector. Uh, prior to Icarus, Arun Arun was also with EY London before transferring to Dubai, where he was instrumental in building the debt and capital market division across the Middle East. He has led, designed, executed transaction for Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, FTSC hundred companies with financial institution including QIA, HSBC, and Credit Suisse. He is a well chartered accountant, uh, ICAEW. Which he obtains while at you know Arthur Anderson and holds MSc Accounting and Finance from London School of Economics. Uh, with uh, almost two decades of experience, I am sure this session is going to be very exciting. Uh, so Arun, my first question to you is, you know, uh, you know how difficult it is to be a contrarian investor because when you see everything is going up and uh, you are not investing, and at times you see when markets are going down. uh still you have not deployed all your funds i mean or you may be over deployed or you may be contrarian to the markets what market things and what you think has lot of difference so how how difficult it is a and b especially during the bad times uh, how does it play out what's what's been your experience of last 20 years if you can share it with our valuable investors got it got it no thank you thank you for such a interesting question Ah uh, yeah, of course. Uh, being an contrarian uh, investor is pretty lonely, uh, and at times it's pretty painful. As you mentioned, when times are looking bad, when there are a lot of headwinds out there, whether it's uh, interest rates are rising, geopolitical conflict, uh, their business cycles, their market cycles, there's a whole bunch of things that can go uh, not your way essentially. Uh, so how do you manage uh, these situations when you're seeing, especially when times are bad? You're seeing a lot of red in your portfolio. No one really likes the sight of blood uh, on their funds or in, and their net worth. So essentially, you have to. I guess you still have to have a strong stomach. Uh, you know, there are a lot of quotes, and uh, of course, one of the greats, Peter Lynch, says it's not how you know, not how smart you are. It's how strong your stomach is. Uh, to paraphrase him, 
So essentially, uh, there are various factors that you have to understand. And one is really the structural story. You have to really look at structurally what's happening to your stocks, to your sector, uh, to your macro. And that really sets the setting uh, effectively of whether you enter in, uh, whether it's a specific vertical or whether it's a specific country. And of course, looking at a country like India, which is one of the largest economies in the world, number five today, going to number three uh, in only a few years' time, growing at six, eight uh, percent, you know, sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. It gives you a good comfort that this is a growing country. And then you really have to understand the verticals. What are the structural stories? What are the inflections? Where is the value going to unlock? And within that, you're going to identify some sectors. And for us, at least, it's better we focus on manufacturing, hard assets, uh, industrial, steel, cement, chemicals, flexible packaging. And why is this? It's because they're pretty basic industries. Again, we understand it. So again, back to Mr. Peter Lynch, do what you know. And these businesses we know uh, pretty well. At least no one's going to have too much of an edge against us given that they're so basic. And again, once you've come down and pinned down to your actual companies, you've got to identify that intrinsic value effectively. So even if there's a whiplash, there's volatility in the market, which is very much the extrinsic factor. The market can whip you up and down, show you or down. But as long as that company that you've invested in has a decent uh, intrinsic value that's higher than that extrinsic value, as long as the structural store story is uh, still intact, then that can give you an anchor, that can give you comfort, that even on if on paper it's showing red, that you still have some upside. Uh, and it's at those moments that you have to kind of have that courage to either continue putting money in, or at least hold to your position uh, and not get too influenced by the what the market is showing. Yeah, I understand. It's truly based on the fact that, you know, what sort of conviction you have on the underlying, mm. uh, you know, beyond the exactly. point, uh, when you are contrarian, you you look different. And when you look, yeah. look different, you have to have full full amount of conviction on what we are trying to do. So, uh, mm -hmm. great. you know, I've been uh, reading a book, uh, Arun, and this book is called Concentrated Investing, you know. Okay. Uh, and this book, uh, you know, while I was going through, uh, you know, a couple of points that came across to me. On the one hand, you have, you know, Bakshir Hathaway is uh, run by Charlie Munger, which is, a, or and Warren Buffett, who's, who the guys are supposed to have the best brains in terms of equity investing. And then you have, on the other hand, other hand Peter Lynch, you know, who talks about, uh, you know, uh, 250, 260 companies in the portfolio. And generate mm -hmm. similar sort of returns in the long run. In fact, mm -hmm. times Peter Lynch has beaten down the performance of Bakshir Hathways. Now, mm -hmm. my question to you is, you know, and you've been all around the world and have seen uh, multiple markets and have been tracking them. Uh, how difficult it is to generate alpha uh, from a concentrated portfolio? Because when when some bets do not work out, uh, you know, out mm -hmm. of the concentrated portfolio that you build, it becomes a loss of opportunity also. Uh, so what's yeah. your thoughts on that? No, of course. I mean, first of all, you've got to start with the, the right investment philosophy, the right understanding and the right competence. Without that, you're lost. Without, uh, you know, you can be diversified or you can be concentrated. But if you have the wrong philosophy, uh, you're not starting off on the right footing at least. So why would we essentially advocate for a concentrated uh, portfolio? 
essentially it's because once you go maybe beyond 30 stocks, then uh, you know you lose that bandwidth. How many companies and industries can one really hold? So you really want to have the pulse of that company. You know, what happens if there's an issue, if there's a change of management, what's happening to raw material prices, what's happening in the sector. That way you really understand the company a lot more. You're more in tune with it. If you're sitting in 40, 50, 60, or as you said, maybe even 200, you you lose that ability to really understand each individual company because there's just so much work you can do. There's only so much work you can do. So for us, we like to have that concentrated approach, essentially so we can understand those sectors and so those companies a lot better than if we had a broader portfolio. And secondly, you know, the market sometimes, not often, but sometimes it gives you a great opportunity. When there's a good stock, we feel that it's pretty much undervalued and there's a great upside. So why not, why not batter up? You know, you want to take a big swing at it. You want to hit it for six. So why not take a pretty decent allocation into that stock? Of course, uh, it may not work out. But as long as you're there with your risk mitigation, your proper portfolio uh, construct, that even if it's dead capital, as you said, sometimes things don't go in your favor. Even if it's dead capital, at least you're diversified. You know, you're not sitting in one position, one stock. You're diversified in maybe uh, 15, 20, 25 stocks. But at least you can focus and say, this company, I believe, has a great upside. And why not take that opportunity? So that's why we would really advocate um, a concentrated portfolio, because uh, A, it makes a difference if you have concentration in a, in a couple of stocks or in a fewest uh, number of stocks. Two, you can understand those businesses and those sectors a lot more. Uh, so that's essentially our thought process. Of course, for others, they may take comfort in diversification. But then it's probably because they're not looking at it on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, I can't mention about Peter Lynch. He had, a, you know, he had a big analyst team. Uh, but for us, at least, we're very much focused on those uh, uh, on that approach. Yeah, uh, I agree that you know when you have these twenty-five, thirty companies that you talk about, at least you have uh, enough understanding. You can actually go and track. You can, you can. Um, you know, get on to the management discussion, understand uh, deeply about what's happening, you know, in, uh, and for a human being, I think it's very, very difficult to track 250, 300 companies, but that's a style. I mean, uh, different people have different styles. So the other thing mm -hmm. is, you know, uh, you know, there's a saying that in the long run, you, you, you know, in the short run, you short uh, run, you overestimate yourself. And in the long run, you sort of underestimate yourself. And that's how, uh, stock investment is also perceived to a large extent in the sense that when people try to identify the intrinsic value of the company, many times I see people going wrong in the sense that uh, they take a short-term view and, and take a U-turn from there. Uh, so what do you think? Because ultimately what you're doing is essentially discounting the future cash flow. Uh, but, but to what extent you can go uh, and what are the parameters to be looked at? Can you throw some more lights on that? Oh, sure. Thank you. Uh, so essentially, yeah, I mean, for us, what is the short term? It's got to be at least two, maybe three years. That's really um, a short time period where we feel, you know, sometimes you can't guess the short term. You really have to take that longer viewpoint, five, six, seven, eight, ten years. What is structurally happening to your business? Because as mentioned earlier, there's market cycles. Sometimes you have, can have good companies, but because the market cycle 
is uh, in uh, in a bear market, that uh, that value is suppressed. Then you have business cycles. Sometimes uh, good companies there may be over expansion of capacity, so there may be a strong uh, kind of uh, uh, long term cycle. But because of this over expansion, there's like boom bust scenarios. So you really have to say take that longer viewpoint. And uh, that way you won't get whiplashed or influenced by near-term activities. Uh, at the beginning of the year, everyone, you know, a lot of people were saying there are a lot of headwinds, geopolitics, uh, interest rates were going up, inflation, FIIs were uh, leaving at the end of last year. So there was a lot of, let's say, negative headwind. But now look where we are. It's uh, July 2023, and we're almost at uh, record highs. And anyone sitting in January saying we're going to be a record of highs, they would be, they would probably be laughed at, or no one could believe them, and they can't even prove it. So it's really better not to uh, focus on that short term. And uh, you know, if you feel there are headwinds, maybe proportionately or moderately according to your own risk uh, risk appetite, move a touch into cash. But to completely exit and make absolute moves from equity to bonds or cash. For us, at least, it's not really something that we would do, but we may increase our cash position to create a drag, uh, essentially. So short-term movements, as mentioned, is like notional for us. It's volatility. It's a notional loss that you might experience. Uh, but we're really having our eye on the long-term, the five, the 10-year perspective, because that way, as long as our business is structurally intact, and as long as that business case is there, as long as there's an inflection or value unlock in play, then we're comfortable in our positions. Of course, as mentioned, we may moderately move them around due to the near-term um, headwinds, but you know we're comfortable because even if that stock price goes against us, we may even stagger in more. We may even average into the market and take advantage of that near-term volatility. So um, that's just our thought process that we're not chasing momentum. As value investors, which is what we are, we're not trying to chase momentum. We're trying to buy in uh, decent companies at very decent valuations. Okay, okay, yeah. So valuation also, I mean, is very, very important aspect when you define the intrinsic value because uh, there are two school of thought. So one says that when you know the intrinsic value of the company is going to be too high, then the mm -hmm. current price or the valuation doesn't matter. On the other side, people say that, you know, if you get the valuation right, then only I'm going to get the intrinsic value correct. Uh, so that's a subsequent question on this. So what's your views on that? Uh, sorry, well, what's the second part? If you can just... So valuation, as in, in yeah. finding the intrinsic value, uh, mm -hmm. how important it is to look at the current valuation? Um, yeah, I mean, the current valuation in terms of, of course, when you're looking at your intrinsic value, that's really your anchor. You know, one, if you've got that right, if you've done the right homework, then, uh, of course, uh, that really gives you the anchor where the stock, where this company can be going, whether it's today or in five years. You have to obviously um, put in that forecast. But in terms of market value, that really gives you the thoughts of whether it's worth entering uh, this company, because if the market value is much more depressed, maybe uh, because of market cycles or business cycles, if it is depressed, uh, essentially, and the intrinsic value is much higher that, that in, than your market value, that's really the opportunity. You're really trying to say, is it going to go up 100%, 200%, 300%? 
And that gives you that opportunity. But if your intrinsic value is very close to your market value, whether it's 10 or 20%, then it really doesn't give you much, let's say, asymmetric risk and return because the market itself could drop 20%. And if your upside is 20%, then you've just gone for one for one. So really, you have to look at them in tandem to say, what is the size of the price? Because you really want a big price. If you're going to invest and put in your hard-earned money or someone else's hard-earned money, you want to make sure that the risk and the reward is skewed in your favor. Um, so both count, but the bigger the reward and the smaller the risk, obviously, uh, is is what you're trying to aim for. So basically, you get some margin of safety as well along the way. Exactly, exactly. To use uh, Warren Buffett. The other thing is, uh, uh, Arun, so, you know, I want to read your mind now about the perception of India globally because you interact with some of the FPIs and FIIs both. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, of late, uh, uh, the perception of perception of our country has improved a lot uh, and people are talking about India to become third largest economy by 2027 or 28, whatever the year may be. Mm -hmm. uh, but do you really see yourself those structure changes happening in our economy in terms of numbers or you see that the story has just started building up uh, but the reality is yet to be seen? I mean, it really depends on what sector. So starting with uh, the first part of that question, how are FYIs and foreign investors seeing India? There's really a, a good fever around India. It's seen as a shining light. It's growing pretty decently. When you look at the rest of the world, you know, is Europe in recession? Yes or no? What's happening with America? Even if there's good times there, it's still growing at 2 or 3%, which compared to India, which is growing at 6 7 8%, is uh, a lot different. So it's really seen as that shining light. Secondly, um, uh, there is a lot of inflection towards us uh, because uh, traditionally investors generally don't invest in a single country. They, they think it's emerging markets as a group. So they're comfortable investing as emerging markets as a group. And at most they'll say China will invest, will, will take out a portion for China. But India itself, because it's growing in size and stature and even the market cap, um, is beginning to carve out its own space. So rather than think as emerging markets as a whole, where India is part of, they're suddenly saying, we want a piece of India. Because how are they going to come into India? They can't come in operationally. A lot of businesses come in uh, to India and from abroad, whether they're world class or the world's biggest, and they haven't done as well trying to get their feet on the ground. But how are you going to get a piece of wealth creation? The, one of the best ways is through the equity market because you're aligned with the promoters. They're already in, in India and you're able to um, get part of, uh, let's say, ownership in companies that are hopefully going to do well through the India story. So that's really uh, my thought process, speaking to people. But India's on the tip of many people's tongues, whether they want to invest. Uh, you know, it takes a long time for, for thought processes and perception to move. But I think we're really much on the cusp and on the on the cusp of uh, you know uh, good good fund inflows, sticky funds generally. Then going back uh, to your sorry and uh, yeah, the second, second part of the question, yeah, yeah, about becoming the third largest economy. Oh yeah, I think you know you can see it on the ground. Um, essentially, 
you know, again, I can't vouch for all sectors and all businesses, but the ones that we're looking at, uh, which is much at the industrial level, uh, we can see, we can feel it. It's tangible. So whether you're looking at infrastructure, back in 2018, the government announced we're going to invest 1.5 trillion dollars. That's a huge that's a huge number. Who's going to build India? Of course, along came COVID, delays, stop, start. Then they announced another 1.2 trillion. I think back in 2020. Uh, so this is like a big, massive number. And suddenly, when you're seeing at the order books, you're seeing at the um, the flows within the infrastructure companies, they're generally at record highs. So they are tricking down. Now, whether it goes to 2.7 trillion or it's even half that number, whatever the number is, it's it's massive. And you can even see it in the budget, where the budget itself has increased its infrastructure spend. So we're hopeful that this will continue. Secondly, you can see it in the underlying uh, structural businesses. So whether it's steel, today we're sitting at uh, India is the number two player in the world in terms of steel capacity output. Um, you know, there's two billion tons of capacity in the world ballpark. One billion is sitting in China. One hundred and twenty million tons is sitting in India. And then, of course, you've got the next rung of players. But these companies themselves are looking to double their capacity by 2030, if not increase it a little more. So essentially, structurally, you see these CapEx plans. Because as India, this is an, another evidence of the inflection point. So as India moves from, uh, let's say, ballpark, it's around $2,800 GDP per capita. As it moves to that 4,000 level, 5,000 level by the end of the decade, that's like lower middle income space. And that's a real inflection as people say, I've got enough for my fixed costs. And you're discrete, let's say someone's fixed costs in uh, on average is two thousand dollars. So eight hundred is going to discretionary. But now eight hundred is expanding to two thousand. So that's a that's a huge multiple from discretionary spent. So effectively, they'll say I need two wheelers. Someone with a car will say, I need a second car, I'll need affordable housing. Obviously, you need the infrastructure to back that. So this is a real inflection point. And the steel companies, because they're expanding, because they're doubling, can see that, can see that momentum. So again, because of their CapEx plans, that's another indication of uh, what's happening on the ground. Okay, great, great, Arun. Uh, so with that, we'd like to conclude our session here. It was a pleasure talking to you and you got a lot of insights uh, in terms of what's happening. So thank you so much once again. Thank you very much, Vikas. It was a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you.